0: God created sports so that you'd have the opportunity to practice more grace? Let's get this ball rolling! Before God and Your Body, I didn't know that I could build my physical strength as well as my spiritual strength. Now I'm ready for anything that devil throws at me. <laughs> well, I don't know about the rest of you, but I think maybe this series on God and Your Body has been the most effective one we've ever done here at Union Chapel. And those, those workout videos, you know, I thought they were just supposed to be funny. But I actually started doing them, and well... You can see for yourself, it's really been effective. What is so funny? Listen, dedication and hard work can pay off in your life like that. Um, for $10, uh, you can touch the bicep after the service, all the proceeds will go to Kazakhstan Missions, line just forms down here, it's fine, people have been lined up all weekend. We come to the conclusion of this series, God and Your Bod, today, and if you've been here uh, for a number of these services or all of them you know that we've been attempting to build a theology of the human body. It is the piece that is missing in today's conversation about sex and marriage and gender. And especially this is true for those of us in the church. Many of us in the church, even Christian leaders across the country, want to be loving and careful and, and, and clear about these subjects as the questions arise in our culture. But it's very difficult, it's awkward, and it's uh, tenuous, and the reason that it becomes so awkward is because we don't have a firm place to stand. We don't really understand well God's original design and intent, His creative design for the human body and our relationships. So defining that, building a the theology of the human body, becomes a place upon which we can stand so that we can model and teach what God believes and created us in purposeful ways so that's been our intention and I hope it's been meaningful to you I hope it's encouraged you I hope that it has given you some level of confidence as you have conversation with with folks in your in your natural relationships and in your world and we hope that God has been honored today we want to conclude the series with uh, a peek into a conversation that the Apostle Paul had with the church believers in the church at Corinth And this is kind of a family meeting he's having with them, but we can derive some important information and wisdom from what he tells them. So 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and I'm going to read verses 9 through 13. Our custom is to stand to hear God's word, so thank you as you're able for doing that. So Paul writes, again, this is a family meeting, almost a closed door meeting. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you'd have to leave this world. But now I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy or an idolater or slanderer, or a drunkard or swindler. Do not even eat with these people. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside, expel the wicked person from among you. Now may God help us make sense of this uh, today by his spirit. You may be seated. Thank you so much. Now, all of us have learned that you lose your persuasiveness in about three seconds when your position about current questions in our culture about sex or marriage or gender come up and, and you and you begin with some stated opposition to a particular behavior or lifestyle and your influence goes very quickly that way I want to contend that Christians should not be contend be defined by what we are against we should rather be defined by what we are joyfully for we should be defined by what we are enthusiastically committed to and that's why it's so important to understand God's original purpose and design One of our mentors in this series, Pope John Paul II, has described the human body as something that God wants us to have in covenant, covenant relationship with God, covenant relationship with one another, and not merely convenience, not another commodity. Even in marriage, our relationship shouldn't merely be based on on happiness or companionship or sexual fulfillment or economic efficiencies. These are not substantial enough, significant enough, but rather covenant forms the foundation and the basis of our relationship. Pope John also mentioned to us that the human body could be considered a means of grace, meaning that God's design for our bodies is actually sacramental. It is sacred. And so the way we go through the world is very powerful with great authority. We not only have biological and practical function in our bodies but we also have spiritual capacity in our bodies and it gives us enormous spiritual authority in the world and so it's important to get the picture our foundational passage for this series early on was matthew chapter 19 you recall the occasion there where jesus is encountered by some pharisees they ask him this question is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason Jesus says to, the, to, to that group of questioners that day two different times, he says, we have to go back to the beginning. In order to answer your question, we have to go back to God's original design, his creative purpose for our bodies and relationships. So the question then was, can a man divorce his wife? Jesus reminded them, well, you could also add polygamy because polygamous activity was going on in Moses' day as well. In our day, the question could very well be, is it lawful for a man To marry another man or is it lawful for a man to become a woman and so jesus response to the pharisees that day i think would be the same response he would give us today and it's simply this you have to go back to the beginning to understand god's original design and intent if you want to have a theology of the body and of our relationships you have to see god's original intention and purpose and so he says two things to them as he lays a foundation for his response First of all, he reminds them that God, has, God made them, he created them male and female. In other words, Jesus reaffirmed the binary nature of human sexuality. There are two sexes according to Jesus, not three, not five, not a thousand. There are two, male and female. He created them male and female. Jesus reminds them again. You have to go back to the beginning. And then he uses this phrase again out of Genesis. It is for this cause that a man shall leave his father and mother cleave to his wife the two shall become one flesh and so here we see Jesus reaffirming the covenantal nature of marriage one man one woman in covenant for life so the, the the questioners then push back on Jesus yeah but yeah but yeah but what about what about the situation we have here in our culture now what about these questions what about these issues is it okay and Jesus said look I understand why people deviate from God's original plan I understand that this world is fallen. I understand human sinfulness. The phrase that Jesus used in Matthew 19 was, and because of the hardness of people's hearts. In other words, people's hearts become, become in, desensitized, callous to God's best plan, God's will, best design for their life. And so Jesus said, look, I understand why there are deviations. I understand why it happens. Jesus' concluding statement in Matthew 19 was this, I understand why deviation occurs, but from the beginning, this was not so. So Jesus unequivocally, unequivocally, unapologetically states very clearly there are two genders, that marriage happens between a man and a woman, and that while there are other variations that occur from time to time in society or in the world Jesus understands why it happens but reverts back to the original intent and design that God had it in his creation created order therefore indicating to all of us that the original design is still intact the same parameters still apply this is God's still best creative design and plan and we should adhere to it now let me just make this statement then with re- regard to how the church should respond to a culture that deviates so clearly from God's best original design and I'll put this on the screen for you I think it's in your outline as well the culture does not need from the church anger and judgment nor accommodation and compromise the church's best posture is to joyfully teach and model God's original design and intent while loving accepting and forgiving ourselves and one another when we fall short To simply say we're against something, that's, that's incomplete. To simply say, we, we, okay, we agree and we accommodate, we, we've, lowered, we've, we've changed the standard, and so er, everybody's, everybody's fine regardless of their choices and relationships, that's inadequate as well. And so there is a better way. And the better way is to not reject people, criticize people, so forth, or accommodate people in all of their choices. The better way is to learn how to love ourselves and love one another authentically and trusting in God's grace. Now, as we move through the world and relationships with these issues, how do we relate to people who have a different view than us? I want to rehearse those questions with you today. A very practical sermon. And so the first question is this. It's on your outline. You might want to write this down. Isn't this conversation much ado about nothing? Is this much ado about nothing? This conversation about same-sex, for example, it takes away. It takes away from our mission focus. I mean, after all, the church is supposed to be making disciples for Jesus Christ. And doesn't conversation about what we do with our bodies and how we do our relationships, doesn't that detract from our primary mission? And after all, folks say there's no reference to homosexual activity in the Nicene or Apostles' Creed, the two historic creeds that all Christians in all places at all times agree that these are the foundational uh, documents historical and theological assertions of our faith. And by the way, we did a series on the Apostles' Creed just a few months ago, and if you weren't here you didn't hear it, I would encourage you to go back, admonish you to go back and listen to those messages. The Apostles' Creed, there were 12 apostles, there are 12 assertions in this creed, therefore the name Apostles' Creed... And it simply gives the theological framework and foundation for what we believe as Christians. And as I say, all Christians in all places in all times have agreed that this is what we believe. This is the Christian faith. And I just want to say to you that it matters what you believe. It's important to know what you believe. Yeah, it's very important. And so inform yourself. Take advantage of the opportunity to learn. What are the 12 assertions of the Apostles' Creed? And, and what do they mean? And how do they apply to my life? And so I encourage you to do that. So those who push back and say, well, the creeds, the creeds don't mention anything about same-sex, for example. Well, they don't, in fact, address any ethical issues. It's because they're not designed to. They're historical documents with theological assertions. So the creed, for example, says both the Nicene and Apostles' Creed have the phrase, we believe in the forgiveness of sins. But it doesn't list any of those sins. Not murder, not theft, not dishonesty. It doesn't mention my top four sins. My top four sins, you've heard me confess this before, are greed and gluttony, avarice and lust. Uh, my secondary, those are my primary sins. My secondary sins are pride, anger, envy, and sloth. Thus completing all seven of the deadly sins. <laughs> it's okay for you to laugh. I, I must not laugh. <laughs> It's not funny. Again, Matthew 19, Jesus unambiguously reaffirms our binary sexuality as male and female and marriage as between one man and one woman. Some argue, though, but Jesus didn't mention opposition to same-sex relationships, so it doesn't count. Well, let me just remind you that the whole Bible is in play regarding our ethical boundaries. And there's a fairly clear, likely explanation for why Jesus never mentions same-sex relations, and it's because it never crossed anyone's mind in the first century to bring it up. Literally, it, never, it, it, it simply was not a relevant issue in Jesus' time. That's why he didn't mention it. So the first question is, is this much ado about nothing? Actually, no, it's a, it's a lot about something. And the second question you might hear is, why is the church so focused on these issues? Why is the church so focused? And again, the implication is that we are neglecting so many other important issues, spending so much time on this one. And why spend so much time on sex and marriage and gender and not much on gluttony, greed, avarice, and lust? It's a fair question. The simple explanation the simple explanation is that no one, listen, that no one anywhere has tried to take gluttony Greed, avarice, lust, murder for that sake, off the sin list and place them on the sacramental list. No one's saying, now that greed and gluttony is OK, it's desirable, it's normal, it's holy, it's sacred, should be on the endorsed list. For example, as it turns out, the church universally condemns greed. Everyone is against it, all over the world. It's not up for debate. Everybody is in, is in complete unity around the subject. Greed is bad. So if tried to, someone tried to take greed from, from one of the list of sins, there's a list of sins mentioned in Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 to 9. Tries to take that off the list. And now they reassert, well, for centuries we know that greed has been a sin for which Christ died. In fact, it was a sin that was literally nailed to the cross. You do understand that Jesus Christ while in his earthly body, was pinned, nailed, impaled by spikes and affixed hands and feet to a cross. You do know that, with the blood running down and the associated agony, and that the Bible teaches that Jesus, the one who knew no sin, literally became sin on our behalf, so that not only was he suffering the physical agonies of the cross, but also the weight of the sins of the world, all of your sins, individual sins, and all of our sins in aggregate rested upon Jesus. You, you begin to get the idea, the picture is coming clear that God went to an extreme expense to satisfy the penalty of our sins. Would you agree that sin must be a very, very serious issue for God to have given so much to accommodate the penalty of sin? And so greed being one of those sins, historically, universally recognized as a sin, greed, it's bad, on the body of Jesus, affixed to the cross, And now we want to remove that one. We're going to take greed off of Jesus' shoulders now. We don't want him to feel the weight of that particular sin. So we take greed and we pull it off of Jesus. And we don't merely take it off of Jesus, but now we take greed, which we all agree was sin, but now we've changed our mind. God has changed his mind about greed. Now it's good. Now it's sacred. Now it's holy. Now it's preferable. And we've taken greed and we've placed it not just aside, but we've placed it on the altar, the most holy place. And we call it good. If that were happening, then we'd all be up in arms and fussing about greed. I think greed is good. God changed his mind about greed. Greed is normal. It's desirable. It's holy. It's sacred. It should be embraced. We should endorse greed. There would be greed activists both in the church and in our culture They'd have special colored banners, probably green, insisting on the normalization and the acceptance of greed. We have talked today about gender reassignment. Let me tell you what the bigger issue is for the church of Jesus Christ. It's doctrinal reassignment. If you start changing and eroding the basic doctrines of the church, then you have no place left to stand. You have no place from which to teach or model a more joyful way of God's original design and intent for our relationships. So we have issues that for millennia have been a means of condemnation, now being made a means of grace. We have issues on the sin list now being placed on the sacrament list. So people ask, why is the church so focused on these issues? And the answer is, that's why we have to be focused on this issue. Here's a third question, you might wanna write this down. Can't we agree to disagree? Can't we all just get along? Can't we agree to disagree on these subjects? I mean, it seems that reasonable people disagree about these subjects. This is the position the United Methodist Church, our particular denomination, loves to take. We now have the Council of Bishops in the United Methodist Church trying to hold the denomination together with weak and desperate proposals based on the assumption that the highest value in the church is unity. and i want to submit to you that while unity is a very high and important value it is not the highest value the highest values in the church of jesus christ are love and faithfulness and so our council of bishops have made a proposal that will be formally formally considered just after the first of the year and the, and this is the proposal in order for us to stay together as a denomination and not divide over this issue We're going to leave it up to individuals to decide whether they think same-sex is okay or same-sex isn't okay. So every pastor has to decide for themselves. Is it okay or not okay? Every congregation will have to decide. Every annual conference will have to decide. Every jurisdiction within the church across America, across the world will have to decide. And so we'll just all agree to disagree. As a result, the church has become an adjudicator an arbiter, an umpire, a a referee, if you will, in a sea of preferences. Convictions now have been overturned by these preferences. Divine revelation has been supplanted by personal perspectives. Truth has been uprooted by experience. You've heard me referring to the definition, Oxford Dictionary definition of post-truth relating to or denoting circumstances in which objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotion and personal belief. Don't confuse me with the facts, even scientific facts, because of the way I think and the way I feel, that's more important. We love the word perspective in our culture. We we are enthralled with the word experience. But we are less clear or enthusiastic about the word revelation. So truth has been lost in this miry pit. God's original creative design and purpose for human sexuality has been lost in the soup. And so the church, our particular denomination, has taken this commodity-driven approach and asks, okay, who are our constituents? What is our market share? How can we stay in favor with our constituents and our market share? Well, one way we can do this, and this is how the church has reasoned this out, this is the way, this is the the trail that we're going down. We'll simply normalize everyone's opinion within our current constituency, and that will ensure that we'll remain popular and therefore we'll survive as a denomination. As a result, even our sexuality now is being driven by commodity. It's supply and demand. It's the market. What may be right in this church because of their market will be wrong in another church because of their market. What one pastor thinks is okay, another pastor might think is not okay. But we'll let the market decide because we don't want to offend anybody. We want to make sure we agree with everybody because we're kind of desperate right now because our denomination is sinking into the abyss and losing tens of thousands of members every year. And we don't know why. Confused by that. Astonishing. This is the postmodern, post truth reality setting up shop in the church. This is the modern church, so out of touch with God's original design and revelation about human sexuality, and so full of compromise and accommodation that it no longer has the capacity to stop and say to the culture, look culture right in the eye and say, Yes. We understand that God's original design is not being practiced in large part in our culture anymore. We understand the world is sinful. We understand the world is broken. We understand that people's hearts are hard. We get it. But from the beginning, this was not so. Church having lost its moral authority in the world, trying to accommodate and appease our share of the market. Crazy. The inevitable consequence to these behaviors is that the whole of Scripture can be dismissed. The essence of God's redemptive plan for humanity in Jesus Christ can be lost. Can't we agree to disagree? Here's a fourth question. Why are some Christians so angry and bigoted? That's a good question. It's a fair question. Really good question. The Apostle Paul, the older writing to his protege Timothy the Younger in 1 Timothy 1.5. I'll put this on the screen for you. He reminded Timothy, the goal of our instruction is love. The goal is love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Yeah. So we must be committed as Christian people, committed to kindness and gentleness, the fruit of the Spirit. And let me just say and make this confession, the church hasn't always been kind and gentle around this subject. My generation has failed. Kudos to the younger among us. The younger generation has done much better with this. But we should have a zero-tolerance position on bullying and harsh and hateful attitudes and words, attacking people who struggle. And we need to monitor and manage our young people because this starts early in life, in the early grades, when this kind of behaviors start. But this demeanor of the fruit of the Spirit, kind and gentle, is the responsibility as Christians. We shouldn't expect persons who have not been touched by God's grace in Jesus Christ to uphold these kinds of ethics. Some of you are going to be amazed to hear that while folks commonly engage in fornication, adultery, sodomy in our culture today without hesitation, there was a time in this country, brace yourself now, when fornication, adultery, and sodomy were against the law could get arrested and thrown in jail for it. Really? (laughs) Not anymore. The people of faith now live on what we might describe as the prophetic margins. People with a biblical vision, a worldview that includes God's best design, creative purpose for the human body and relationships. We're not at the center of culture anymore. We're pushed to the margins. I might call the prophetic margins. So that people like me and some people like us have to take a stand where we believe the Scripture teaches, history tradi- teaches God's best plan for our relationships, find themselves as a theology, a place where we can stand, uh, while the culture around us takes great umbrance with us. So we approach the culture in a different way. We're fully aware that most folks in our culture today will not readily accept our belief, or in this case, our theology of the human body. We get it. But here's what we say in our denomination, our official position right now, which I believe and respect and endorse, is the statement that all persons are of sacred worth. All persons are of sacred worth. A great statement, which I find true and valuable. All persons are of sacred worth. Then with some more words with regard to same sex, and then this concluding statement, which says, yet homosexual practice is incompatible with Christian teaching." Homosexual practice is incompatible with Christian teaching. Okay, well, this is our version, our denomination's versions of love the sinner, hate the sin. Love the sinner, hate the sin. Now, when I use that phrase, we understand this distinction. And it actually, for us, it has a lot of moral value to us. Love the sinner, hate the sin. I mean, that, that's, that's all persons of a sacred worth. However, practicing certain things is incompatible with the teaching. Here's the problem: The culture has no way to comprehend this position. Love the sinner, hate the sin. Culture has no reference point for understanding this perspective. It is not comprehensible. It is incomprehensible to our current culture to assume a position that says, we love people, we love the sinner, but we hate behaviors, certain behaviors. In today's culture, if you see any judgment about sin, any sin of any kind is considered judgmental. It doesn't matter how kindly or gently you say it, you'll still be labeled with hate speech. You're a hater. Which has happened to me in the course of this series. You're a hater. My response is, no. No, I'm not. Yes, you are. You're a hater. No. No, I'm not. You do, but you don't like certain people. That is not my position. And by the way, yelling is not an argument. Stop calling me names. It's not true. So the Apostle Paul gives us some light. From our text today, there are a couple of things we can learn about the proper reaction. And one of them is this. We should have extravagant love for all people. Extravagant love. Unconditional love. Unconditional. No conditions. None. Just love people. If we love people outside of the amazing grace of God, we love them conditionally, then we fail to mirror Christ's love to the world. So we love people unconditionally. What about people, what about people, do you let people in your church who have the sins of of greed and gluttony and avarice and lust? Yes, Uh, otherwise we wouldn't have a pastor. Otherwise the pastor doesn't qualify, he has to leave. Because he's already confessed those are his temptation points. Well, what about a person who's, who's uh, same-sex oriented? Are they welcome in the church? What kind of a question is that? Why is it even necessary to ask? We already said the guy with greed and gluttony and avarice and lust is welcome added envy, angry, and sloth to the list, (laughs) the seven deadly. So, yes, everyone is welcome. Everyone is to be loved unconditionally. Everyone is to be embraced extravagantly. So you make the application. If they're welcome in the church, anyone is welcome. Everyone is of sacred worth, every one of us. Because all of us fail, all of us fall short, all of us miss the mark, all of us have our weak spots, all of us are challenged. Everyone is welcome. We're in this together. And so we open, we open our hearts to everyone. Well, but what if our job is to love, God's job is to change people, God's job is to judge people. That's not our job. It's not our job. Not the job description. The job description is love people unconditionally, extravagantly. Well, I have, I have same-sex people in my family. Great. They want to come to Thanksgiving. Perfect. Give them the best seat at the table. Come on. Just love people. Give them the best spot. Give them the best opportunity. <laughs> yeah, but I, I don't agree. Mm. Just love people. And the second thing we learned from the Apostle Paul, that inside the church, we must be clear about Christian identity. Here's what I believe. The church must recapture discipline around these subjects and accountability. The Wesleyans, by the way, the tradition from which we have sprung, were great at this. It produced enormous growth and vitality in the early years of our movement. But the church is always most vital in the world when we are distinctive from the world. Not like the world, but distinctive from the world. So we're in the world, but not of the world. But we've lost our distinctiveness. And what does that mean? Let me just put this statement on the screen. I just want to clear this up. How do we become more distinctive? We do it by quietly building good marriages and families and churches and friendships. We don't need better words. We need better demonstrations of God's best design. That's where the amen goes in this sermon. That's where the amen goes in the sermon. So, our posture must rest on the basics. We must extend unconditional love to everyone. We must also maintain our identity as God originally designed and intended for us. See, the culture will constantly push back, wants to push. Are you for or against homosexuals? Look, I'm not against anyone. I'm joyfully for God's original design and purpose for the human body and the way God called us to use our bodies in the world. That's what I'm for. That's what I'm enthusiastic about. That's what I'm thrilled about. That's what I find profound and, and meaningful and glorious. That's what I'm for. So you hate people who are greedy? No. Gluttonous? No. Lustful? No. What about people in the LGBT community no lesbian gay bisexual transgender okay and I'm not trying I'm not trying to be humorous here so please don't laugh but what about LGBTQIA now we have queer intersex asexual the letters are growing you you know the story of Facebook it started out when you first got online and signed up you had two boxes to check you're either male or female Today, when you try to sign up for Facebook, there are 58 choices, plus fill-in-the-blanks. Transgender, gender nonconforming, gender fluid, gender questioning, gender variant, gender queer, bigender, etc. 58. What do we learn from this? We learn that we are not at the end of something. We are at the beginning of something. Today is not the final stroke of the sexual revolution which began in the 1960s, when my generation decided we had a better idea for God's design. This was merely the entryway into all the things that we are experiencing today. So let me bring this whole series in for a landing, and I hope you'll give me two minutes and listen carefully. This brave new world that we are now in is not about sex. It is not about sex. This is not about whom can have sex with whom. It's not about that. It's never been about this. Sexual activity is merely the presenting issue to the much deeper point which is the elimination of all gender boundaries, the assumption of gender boundaries. Those physical and genetic markers that were given to us in creation are now being eliminated in our culture. This has never been about sex. This has always been about the body and God's original creative design and purpose for our bodies and relationships. It's always been about that. And so don't be confused about it. And so this is what the stakes are. And what I'm about to say next, you may find hyperbolic. You may think I'm excessive about it, but I believe this very strongly. I think this comes to the essence of the unique challenge that is before us in our culture as the church, and that is this. The culture believes that if we can eliminate the creative design of our own bodies, then we can remove from our minds and our souls and our consciences the creator himself. If we don't have to adhere to God's creative design and purpose for our bodies and the way we use them, then we don't have to fuss with the creator as well. If I can disregard the creative design of my body, that the body is good, the body is trustworthy, the body is sacred, the body is a means of grace to the world, the body is to be employed as created, male and female, And marriage is to be defined as one man and one woman in covenant. If those markers of God's creative design and purpose can be eliminated, then so can God himself be eliminated from my mind, my soul, and my relationships. And therein, my friends, lies the challenge. Therein lies the fight, if you will, for the Christian body and the joyful benefits of embracing God's truth and the creative design and purpose for our relationships. Now, as I mentioned A few weeks ago, I may not live to see us through a breakthrough to God's renewal of the purpose of the human body. Your generation may not see it. Maybe your children or your grandchildren's generation will see it. But sooner or later, listen to me, truth always prevails. And sooner or later, our world will see the restoration of God's beautiful wonderful profound and glorious vision for our bodies and our relationships and when that happens we will say to God be the glory and in the meantime by faith as the people of God and the people who know where we stand right on right on the foundation of God's original creative design and purpose with hearts full of love for each other and for the world working together struggling together striving together doing the best we can Given, given the means of grace and the, and the support of God's work in our lives. We look to the future then and we say, this truth will one day prevail again. And for that we say, to God be the glory. Great things he has done. And so we pause today and we say, here we stand. God help us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you this morning for your word This biblical vision, the clarity, and the focus that Jesus gives us for our bodies. We're called to covenant and sacrament. We're called to grand things and beautiful things and wonderful things, profound things in our bodies, glorious things. That our bodies are literally a means by which you touch us and you touch the world. Amazing. Awesome. Thank you for our bodies and thank you for the design and purpose for which we've been created. Now, Lord, I pray for everyone in this room today because all of us are along the continuum somewhere. All of us struggle. All of us are challenged by these issues And I pray especially for individuals or families who struggle with some of these questions in today's culture. How difficult and confusing and painful hard it must be. So I pray for your mercy and I pray that you would extend your grace, your wisdom to every one of us. Help us ultimately to love extravagantly every person who is of sacred worth to you. Valuable to you and help us to live in that spirit of extravagant love. And for all of us, God, give us a clear picture of your high expectations and the discipline to live live according to it. Come, Holy Spirit, to our lives and to our minds, our souls, and our bodies. In Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen, amen. Would you stand with us?